The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Wednesday, 20th of December. Coming up on The Michael Reed Show this morning. The children of Gaza and the long-term effects on their mental health as the conflict continues. The hospital trolley crisis and the exodus of Irish healthcare staff to Australia. Are we now at breaking point? Fly tipping and illegal dumping calls for greater policing of the anti-littering laws need to be ramped up. After the November riots in Dublin, what are the lessons and what changes need to be put in place for the future? And calls for the European Commission to tackle big tech's toxic algorithms. First this morning, the UN Children's Fund says a ceasefire in Gaza is badly needed so aid agencies can begin to tackle disease and malnutrition. UNICEF's call comes as the UN Security Council spends another day in diplomatic negotiations to try and find consensus for a vote tonight on a new ceasefire resolution. Well, joining us this morning is Peter Power, Executive Director of UNICEF Ireland. Peter, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Do you remain anyway confident that this UN resolution will be ratified later this evening? Uh, good morning, Alan. Uh, it's, it's hard to be fully confident because of you know, what has transpired over the last number of uh, weeks with uh, different countries adopting different positions. This requires unanimity, of course, uh, by the Security Council to adopt a resolution of this nature. And my understanding is that there are very intense discussions and negotiations around the the wording of that and UNICEF has been briefing the Security Council on a regular basis uh, setting out what the humanitarian situation is on the ground so we we are very hopeful because it is desperately, desperately needed at this stage. Now given the shift I suppose in world opinion and the negotiations that are ongoing ahead of the vote on this resolution one would consider that it will probably be pushed through in some shape or form. Were that to happen, what sort of uh, ceasefire would you like to see and how long would you like to see it in place? Obviously, for good, but that's not going to happen. What's the best outcome you could hope for? Well, you're correct, of course. The, the, the children, the women, the people of Gaza, the completely innocent, those who are completely innocent in this conflict, they deserve nothing more than peace and a permanent peace. And we should always have uh, our eye uh, on that goal because that's what they they need more than anything else. In the immediate short term, given the acute nature of the humanitarian crisis, which is deteriorating day by day, hour by hour, Alan, uh, our hope is, and just tracking news reports this morning, uh, the discussion appears to be revolving around a week or so, uh, because the last time there was a ceasefire for a week, uh, we were able to ship in and to transport across Rafa very significant quantities of aid along with our sister UN agencies. We were able to get in you know, lots of things like uh, tents, uh, blankets, warm clothing for children, because it's really like here. It's in the middle of winter and it does get cold there as well in the middle of winter. There's been a lot of rain the, the situation on the ground is 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 poor. So on, on that occasion, we were able to get in significant amounts of aid. So a week would be welcome, and but obviously we would hope for more. Now, in reality, it's nothing more than a sticking plaster stopgap measure. In reality, you won't be able to get in the level of aid that's really required. 
Uh, we won't because we have vast quantities of aid, uh, some of which has been donated by Irish people supporting uh, our work. People perhaps listening to your programme right now, uh, we have vast quantities of aid on the Rafa border crossing. We've got significant quantities of that across already. If we had a week's uninterrupted access, we and other agencies would be able to get a lot more in. Uh, the question, if I could turn it back to you, Alan, the question is if, if that access wasn't granted, the situation would be, a, a, a dire situation would be so much uh, worse. The reports we're hearing from our own staff on the ground who, uh, I should point out, are really like everybody else now. They're internally displaced people. Many of them were in northern Gaza. Now they're displaced uh, they're in the same boat as everybody else. They're living in dark conditions. Their access to food is very, very limited, like really limited. Uh, people are not getting enough food to eat. They're not getting clean water. They're certainly not getting medicines. And those who require hospital care, uh, there are only eight of the previously 34 hospitals functioning in Gaza now. And of course, uh, uh, on top of all of that, you now have two million people compressed into a very, very a small area. So it, this is this is a, a terrible confluence of, of, of events and circumstances which has given rise to mm. really a humanitarian catastrophe. Now whatever about the resilience of adults going through this horrific ordeal, children are going to be hugely impacted physically. We've seen the pictures, we've seen the injuries sustained by children, but mentally we have to look at that as well. And I think just, just for the purpose of this part of the interview, I just want to share this particular statistic with um, with our listeners, and I know you'll be familiar with it, but a study carried out in 2022 by the non-profit Save the Children interviewed nearly 500 children and 160 parents in Gaza. This is pre what's happening at the moment. It found that 80% of children in the study showed symptoms of emotional distress. About half of them were reported having contemplated suicide and three out of five children were self-harming. That's just been a consequence of the ongoing conflict that has been uh, continuing for decades in, in Gaza. What do you anticipate will be the fallout as a result of the current conflict, particularly for children? Well, firstly, Alan, can I say that I'm, I'm familiar with this report. UNICEF uh, contributed to it. Uh, and indeed, uh, as we've discussed previously, I was in Gaza just shortly before this war began. And I met these children. Part of our mission there was to examine the psychological trauma which children had experienced over many years. And of course, that is nothing compared to what's happened now. But but taking just before the conflict began, uh, I, I met children who were showing all those signs. The, the majority of children were sh showing signs of psychological trauma, bedwetting at night, uh, nightmares, uh, very afraid of, of being uh, in crowded situations, noisy situations. And of course, we know from our own research that those scars and that those traumas uh, last for a lifetime with children. Now that was, uh, I was there in late August uh, before October. Uh, now we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children who've been the subject of intense bombardment. And uh, we, we, you know, 
it, 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 it's, an, it's an absolute certainty that all of those children will suffer life, the lifelong effects of this. This is quite a part, of course, from the terrible physical injuries that many children have suffered tra- tragically, as people will have seen on their screens. But part of our relief effort before before this conflict ever started, part of our humanitarian work on the ground, d- it did, does and will centre around providing psychological relief uh, for children. But that, that operation is going to have to be ramped up in a major way over the coming weeks, months and indeed years. From your own perspective, are you of the view that UNICEF and other organisations are becoming overwhelmed with the situation in Gaza? I wouldn't say overwhelmed uh, because uh, this is what we do. The the E in UNICEF stands for emergency. We have been responding to emergencies for 78 years now. Our people are made for situations like this. They're trained for situations like this. That said, the reports we're hearing from our people inside Gaza are very, very distressing. Uh, What they've seen, what they've experienced, what their own families are experiencing. Uh, are we overwhelmed? No, because we have been able to bring in significant quantities, as I mentioned, of uh, tents, blankets, water, medicines, particularly uh, water purification tablets. But we also have been able to bring in new people uh, to bolster our team in Gaza. And these primarily are uh, water and sanitation specialists. So these people are now working on the, uh, the, the water desalinization plants, which I actually saw when I was over there. Uh, so, you know, these are professional humanitarian specialists. Uh, yes, they're, they're, they're obviously affected by what they see, uh, but the mission continues. And I know from my time there that they are determined to uh, continue with their humanitarian mission. Uh, and that will, will, of course, be supplemented uh, by a lot more staff when circumstances uh, allow over the, uh, the coming weeks and months. Is there a danger if this becomes a protracted conflict that a sense of fatigue will set in, that we will shift our focus elsewhere, that the news cycle will move elsewhere? We saw it happening in Ukraine and it continues to happen in Ukraine today. Well, we can never turn our faces away from the suffering of children. Uh, the images that we've all seen uh, practically every night on, on our television screens or reports that that we hear from people on the ground, uh, they paint a picture of real horror and distress uh, for children. And we cannot and should not uh, morally turn our heads away uh, from from what is happening to the children in Gaza. Uh, you know, we we have over 200 people inside Ukraine as well. We're still responding uh, to to that crisis. There are there are many other crises affecting children uh, throughout the world. But right now, in Gaza, hundreds of thousands of children are compressed into a very very uh, small area. And I would say up to a million children in a very very small area, living in desperately unsanitary conditions. Uh, with very limited access to the basic necessities uh, of life, and we cannot turn our faces away uh, from those people. And I can I can say to you very definitely, Alan, and to your listeners, I can tell you that Irish people have responded incredibly generous, generously, and, and that generosity is having a real effect on the ground in terms of uh, 
children having you know warm clothes and blankets not as much as we want but in the, I can tell you in the last two weeks we were able to bring in 70,000 blankets and 120,000 items of warm clothing for children so you know in the in the in the that, that's what they need at just mm. at the moment because it's cold over there but they also need water they need shelter but more than anything else of course they need peace and that's why as we discussed at the top of uh of, of this interview, the ceasefire, however limited it may be, however short it may be, is, is an absolute necessity at this stage. Uh, just before I leave you, Peter, can I ask you of the difficulties faced by um, members of UNICEF on the ground in Gaza to be able to do their job adequately, given the stories we have heard about uh, aid workers? I mean, we have countless aid workers who have been killed, journalists who have been killed. Are they even capable of delivering the sort of services that are required in emergency situations, given the situation on the ground in Gaza? They are. They are continuing to do so under, as you say, extremely challenging circumstances. Uh, they, you know, as I mentioned, they themselves and their families uh, are not. The vast majority of them are not living in the houses our homes, our apartments that they lived in six weeks or eight weeks ago. They're living in different places and cramped and difficult uh, conditions. Uh, But as I mentioned, these are uh, highly professional people. They're trained humanitarian specialists. This is what they're trained to do. And yes, the circumstances are difficult. My my colleague, James Elder, uh, was in Gaza only last week, but he reported that our teams are continuing to work with uh, local groups on the ground so that when the when when this aid comes across the border we see and hear all about these trucks it isn't that the trucks just come over the border and they unload the trucks they, you know, these trucks have to make their way through supply chains then they have to be uh, unloaded and given to trusted uh, partners of ours and other agencies they then have to make their way through uh, logistical supply chains to those people who need them so you know that that requires a lot of specialization a lot of logistics experts uh, and and that's what they're they're continuing to do and 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 we wish them well we obviously fear uh, for their their safety we fear for their well-being but we applaud the fact that they are staying and delivering on their mission. I know just finally, Peter, um, reading a report uh, from the United Nations that, you know, UNICEF is facing what they described as a pinch point financially early into 2024, that they may not be able to react to the emergencies that they would like to do, given funding difficulties. How serious is that? Well, you know, as, as we all know, over the last number of years, there have been really an, an enormous amount of crisis around the world. Uh, some uh, uh, geopolitical, like uh, Ukraine, uh, Yemen, uh, Sudan, caused by conflict, conflict-generated crisis. I was in Somalia only a few short weeks ago, but that's a climate-related uh, crisis there where over 4 million people need humanitarian aid uh, because their climate has changed and they can't farm their land anymore. Uh, there are crises in Af- Afghanistan, which I've visited as well, and other places around the world. But our our mission, if I can say so, is a universal one. It comes from the the countries of the world, from the General Assembly. We have to respond to all humanitarian situations, no matter where they are. And we have you know operations in over 150 countries. So they, that mission will continue. Yes, uh, we need financial resources uh, to do that. Uh, but you know we we will make what we have 
go as far uh, as possible. Uh, you know, last year we 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 had millions and millions of children around the world, uh, and and this year even I, I I of course I forgot to mention uh, the Turkey and Syria earthquake earlier on. Irish people helped UNICEF respond in an amazing way to that crisis. We were absolutely thrilled with the support we got there. That made a difference on the ground. Then there's the Morocco earthquake, and of course only a few weeks ago the devastating uh, de- uh, flooding in, in in Libya. So all those countries that I've mentioned, uh, we have teams, we, 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 we say we're there before, during and after emergencies. We have teams there uh, and they are responding uh, and they will respond into the future. And where children are affected, that's our mandate. Okay. Where children are affected or where, where, where they are suffering, uh, we will be there. Super. Peter Power, Executive Director of UNICEF Ireland, thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. The European Commission launched formal proceedings against Twitter, formerly known as X, for suspected infringements of the EU Digital Services Act. It will now investigate whether content that breaks the law is spread by the platform and whether the platform is unlawfully non-transparent. However, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties urges urgent action against toxic algorithms on Twitter formerly known, or X, formerly known as Twitter, and other big tech platforms. The European Commission should learn from the example of Commission Niman, Ireland's new broadcasting and online regulator. Joining us this morning to discuss this, Dr Johnny Ryan, Senior Fellow with the ICCL. Uh, Dr Ryan, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, morning first of all, let, let's talk about these toxic algorithms. What are they? Okay, so what we're talking about here are recommender systems. These are the things that decide what is going to turn up in your feed when you go onto uh, YouTube or TikTok. Now, these algorithms, they select emotive and extreme content, and they show it to people that the system estimates are most likely to be outraged. And that means that the people spend longer on the platform, and that allows the platform to make more money showing those people ads. So if you think about how we used to believe social media were treating us, We thought they were places where people could choose what they shared with their friends. But instead, social media have become toxic places where big tech feeds us a toxic diet of hate, hysteria, suicide content, all of that horrible stuff. Okay, Doctor, I'm I'm, I'm sorry for cutting across you, but I just don't want this to gallop away from us uh, into the Mm -hmm. realms of... Uh, highfalutin stuff that people don't understand. So let's try and distill it to its simplest possible form. Algorithms, presumably, are fed to us on the basis of what we input into our computers, whether it be online or whatever. They recognise that we have a penchant for whatever and they push Mm -hmm. content and other things to us of interest based on what we put, put in. Is that a fair assessment of what we're talking about? That's exactly it. Okay, now... On the basis of that, then, why are platforms allowed to push what you call this dangerous, toxic algorithms to us? I thought they had mechanisms in place that would recognise, weed out and stop this. Well, uh, under the new rules that have been issued by Commission Naman, our regulator, um, the new rules will stop them from automatically having those systems active. So no longer will they be allowed to build intimate profiles or dossiers about each person. And that means that they'll have to stop building really invasive, intrusive profiles about our children or any person whose age is unproven. 
in order to then manipulate them for profit by artificially pumping hate and hysteria into their feeds. Now, there is an onus on us as users of these particular platforms that we can have the choice of not engaging with them. But is that a realistic proposition or prospect given where we are in terms of online, AI and whatever else? No, I don't think it is realistic. Um, Nearly everyone has at least one major platforms account. And what you don't know is that there's a supercomputer at the other end of that, that is trying to figure out what makes you tick and push your buttons. So let me give you a practical example. Our colleagues over at Amnesty International ran a study recently. They set up a completely new TikTok account where they posed as a 13-year-old girl. Now, they started to look at mental health videos on TikTok as that girl. And one hour, within one hour of having set up that account, videos glamorizing suicide were being recommended to that to that young girl that is a problem that is not a problem that that is something very serious that needs to be stamped out and asked why is it allowed to happen again i go back to the point who is the gatekeeper of content that it's going on these platforms well the platforms unfortunately Uh, are really kings of their own domain. So this is why it's good that we have an investigation from the European Commission into Twitter, X, whatever it's now called. That's positive. But we need much stronger, more urgent measures. And in this respect, our own regulator, Commission Naman, is leading the world. Now, I'll give you one other scary fact. You might remember Francis Hagen. That's the name of a whistleblower. From Meta, yeah, who, yeah, and remember, she made a big splash because she unearthed an internal um, trove of documents inside Meta and brought them out into the public glare. One of those documents was an internal study that Meta itself had commissioned, and Meta's own study said 64% of all extremist group joins are due to our recommendation tools. Our recommendation systems grow the problem. They knew and they know. Can I put it to you that the genie's out of the bottle on this, that we have got to a point where there is no return to try and put something concrete that is workable to prevent this from happening on these platforms? It's too late. No, not at all. In fact, it's day one for trying to apply the law to these platforms. We have seen incredibly lax enforcement, you know, by the Data Protection Commission and so on against these these platforms. Yeah, but 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 I say that probably in the context of we have seen on so many other occasions where we have tried to implement checking mechanisms that can be circumvented by individuals and whatever laws are in place, they mean nothing. Oh, I see. I see. Checking mechanisms are really not going to cut it. Right? We've been we've been talking about the wrong solution. There's another internal meta document where someone inside Meta wrote down, "We are never going to be able to remove everything harmful or illegal from such a big system, but we can at least stop magnifying the bad stuff by giving it unnatural distribution." Now that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about censoring what people say 
We're not talking about requiring the companies to check every post necessarily. In, in this case, we're saying as a first step, you need to stop amplifying. You need to stop building profiles of people and amplifying things that exploit those people to make yourself money. Before I leave you, I just want to ask you perhaps to comment on a body of research which was carried out, albeit by Samsung, which uh, was released this morning, where it said 68% of Irish people believe AI will be the technology that will flip the world on its head over the next five years. Is that realistic? Well, the first question is, what does AI mean? We have... Uh, we, <laughs> we, we only have 30 <laughs> seconds, not three hours. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the answer is, Alan, who knows? <laughs> But we're heading down a road that could be potentially beneficial, but equally could be catastrophic for us. Is that reasonable to say? What we have, what we have are really simple problems that we have not addressed. So let's not skip ahead. We've got to deal with the basics, and we have failed. Okay, Dr. Johnny okay. Ryan. With permission of man, we have an answer. Okay, Senior Fellow with the ICCL, thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, welcome back to the programme. More than 121,526 patients have gone without a bed in Irish hospitals in 2023, according to the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, making it the worst year for hospital overcrowding on record. 517 patients were on trolleys in Irish hospitals yesterday. Joining us this morning is Tony Fitzpatrick, Director of Professional Services with the INMO. Uh, Tony, good morning. Thanks for joining us. I suppose these figures, coupled with what we're reading in the papers this morning about the exodus of healthcare workers to Australia, doesn't bode well for the future of the health service in Ireland, does it? No, and it's extremely worrying that we have, you know, it's completely unacceptable um, that we have over 121,000 people on trolleys waiting for a hospital bed. And I think sometimes people forget that these are people that have come to the emergency department. They need um, medical and nursing assistance. They've been seen within the emergency department and it's deemed necessary that they're admitted to hospital for further treatment. And the problem is they can't get out of the emergency department into a hospital bed in a timely manner. And what happens then is that they end up then spending a significant period of time on a trolley waiting to go to that hospital bed. And while they're on that trolley, there's insufficient staff to look after them. There's not the proper environment. Indeed, in many circumstances, in some of our worst affected hospitals, you know, it, it's inhumane, it's undignified. They're on cramped uh, toe, head to toe on trolleys within corridors. So it's completely unacceptable in a moder- modern society that we accept the situation where patients are being looked after in this way. And it's important to state that this is causing harm to patients. All the research from around the world shows that, that if you have patients that have been deemed in need of admission and they spend excessive lengths of time on a trolley in the emergency department, it has a, it has a negative impact upon them. But it also negatively impacts the staff. And I think that comes to your second point, Alan, about um, the issue about, you know, staff are looking, um, nurses and midwives, uh, can travel the world, as can the other health professionals. And we continuously we see this, whether it's midwives or nurses, that they're considering leaving. We recently did a survey of our midwives, um, and uh, astoundingly, 72% of them um, are considering have considered leaving um, their workplace in the last year. Again, they're citing workforce, workplace stress, feeling undervalued, 
uh, the low morale, etc., not being able to operate to the scope of their of their ability and their practice. So okay, but, but Tony, significant challenges yeah, that need to be addressed. Yeah, you do accept, though, given the time of year that it is and the number of warnings which have been issued by the HSE HSE uh, around uh, RSV virus and the numbers that are peaking over the past month or so, that is bringing added problems to the trolley numbers, is it not? Yeah, I, I accept that. And, and the reality is that every winter, and it depends, some winters are worse than others, but there's no doubt at the moment, and people, need, and they should be heeding the advice that's coming from the HSC with regards to that. With regards to RSV in circulation, we have COVID-19 and a, a new strain of COVID-19 as well uh, that has been identified, and we have flu. So that is absolutely putting additional pressures on the Irish healthcare system. But again, when we have a system that's operating, so, you know, all, all, all of the, the good management would say that hospitals should be operating at about 85% capacity, and that would allow them to deal with these uh, peaks as they occur with regards to RSV or flu, etc. But the reality is that many of our hospitals are operating above 100% capacity okay. on a continuous level, and it's very hard to continue to drive a car or anything else at full revs all the time. Okay, I just want to share this uh, with yeah. our, our listeners this morning. It was a survey carried out by the Medical Practition, uh, Protection of Beggar Pardon Society and I'll just quote you one part of that and it's one practitioner saying, I often dread coming to work due to staff shortages, can't even take annual leave because of it, feel that life is too short to keep doing this by myself and to myself and my family. So hospital medicine is not for me in the future. Is that the sort of common uh, things that you are hearing from practitioners? Yes, and I think whether it's medicine, uh, nursing or midwifery and allied health professionals, but also, um, you know, there's there's administrative staff and clerical staff that play a key role, like ward clerks are a key role within a health service as well. But again, if you're if you have an emergency department that's overcrowded and you should be just dealing with emergency presentations and moving them on to the wards or surgery or where whatever is required in that regard. But they can't get out of the emergency department. And then you have wards where you've extra trolleys been put up on wards as well. And I think it comes back to safe staffing. I think this is something that's missing. Safe staffing equals safe care and safe staffing saves lives. And the reality is, and uh, I listened to a Vox Pop from from nurses in Australia recently, and it was clear that they were saying when they went to work, it was two nurses looking after eight patients. Mm. That's safe staffing levels. That meant the patients were looked after better. They've got out of hospital. Their length of stay was shorter. Um, but also that the nurses uh, working in that environment had job satisfaction because they were able to care for their patients. And okay, Tony, the well, well, thing that's missing in this health service. Well, let me ask you then, are we then to presume that there are possible downsides in terms of outcomes for patients as a result of the staffing crisis? Absolutely, and, and, and I don't say this lightly. Uh, the reality is that if you have insufficient staff, so for example, a lot of research shows that if you have one nurse looking after eight patients, well, then actually harm had been done to patients. We have scenarios in some of our emergency departments. Yeah, but was, sorry for cutting across, I will let you yeah. finish the point, but is this anecdotal or can we actually point to the fact that patient X has suffered and could have had better care were it the situation where we had more staff? Yeah, absolutely. And and not only the INMO is saying that, but HICWA has said that as well. They have, they have identified, um, you know, that, for example, they talked about CUMH in, 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 in Cork, where they said 
And I quote, such shortages raise concerns about long-term sustainability of the provision of safe, high-quality maternity services across the 19 maternity units in Ireland because of staffing. So even HICWA and ourselves are saying that. But in, in addition to that, there is research from around the world that shows if you have patients on trolleys waiting excessive times, more than four hours, um, to get to a hospital bed, that is having negative consequences. And that includes mortality, um, increased morbidity, increased length of stay, and other complications as a result of being on a trolley. For example, we have older people that end up on a trolley who come in and they're completely complementous or well-functioning at home. But because they're on a trolley for days at times, uh, waiting for a hospital bed, within an emergency department where the lights are on 24-7, some of those patients develop delirium, they get confused, they're not getting adequate sleep. You know, it has. this is affecting patients okay. on a daily basis and it shouldn't be tolerated. Okay, I just want to share this with you and it was from the HSE and they said, this year has seen some improvement on the position over last year and we intend to pursue that continuously in the coming weeks. Trolley numbers are down on the same period last uh, year despite a steep increase in attendances. For example, they say 24-hour breaches for the over 75s are down 11% despite the fact that ED attendances for patients over 75 are up almost 19% on the same week. Last year, and 34% on the same week in 2019. Well, They tell a different story. Well, no, again, this is the tip of this. This has happened before. So before Minister James Riley, for example, criticised the INMO trolley watch to try to shoot the messenger. And then he ended up accepting that our figures were more accurate than the HSEs. These figures that we count, we've been doing it for a significant period of time. And it's from the nurses on the front line within these emergency departments. So there's no doubt about our figures. And the mistake the HSE are making, and indeed the, the department, is trying to argue with us, and they're missing the point. They talk there about 24-hour breaches for over 75. An over 75-year-old should not be on a trolley for, for any time. They should be seen, and then if they deem in need of admission, they should be moved to a bed. In some countries, they have targets of four hours, etc. But a 24-hour breach is completely unacceptable and adversely affects the patient. So it shouldn't be tolerated. They cannot. They're, they're, they're trying to pick, nitpick over figures, etc. They should focus on the reality. Patients are being harmed in emergency departments because of excessive weights on trolleys to get to a hospital bed. They should deal with that problem. And in particular, the five worst affected hospitals need to have really targeted measures put in place. Like, I can't accept the situation, and we know this from being on the ground, of emergency department nurses on a regular basis having to attend the coroner's court because of various cases that are coming up where patients have died within those departments. Okay. That is unacceptable, and they need to get serious about the problem and deal with it. There should be a zero tolerance of crowding within our emergency department. Okay, we leave it there. Tony Fitzpatrick, Director of Professional Services with the INMO. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. An environmental charity says illegal dumping should be treated as a serious crime. The local government management agency has put together a new code to expand the range of recording devices permitted to catch people illegally dumping rubbish. The use of CCTV was provided for in the Circular Economy Bill, but the LGMA proposal for body cameras and drones is currently under review by the Environment Minister. Colm O'Byrne from the environmental charity Voice Ireland joins us this morning. Colm, uh, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Perhaps you could give us an insight into how serious the problem is in terms of tonnage that is being dumped on 
our streets, in our laneways and in our fields annually. Uh, good morning, Alan. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, yeah, I mean, the tonnage, you're, you're, it's, I don't have that figure to hand, but I do know you're looking at, up, I've seen figures of up to sort of 90 million, 100 million in terms of the costs of cleaning up this uh, across the country uh, per year. So you can sort of take from that, there's a huge amount of tonnage. Um, and yeah, it, it's a serious it's a serious criminal enterprise um, and it causes huge damage to the environment and not to say, and, and, and also to, to communities and, and, and people who lo- love to keep their communities looking well and work by themselves or in teams to volunteer and, and do litter picks and it has a, a disheartening, demoralising effect on everyone. So, so it's a, a criminal enterprise. Um, it's, it, everyone else has to pay for these freeloading activities from these rogue traders and it also has the, the moral dimension to it as well. Which and in an important. ideal world, if we had drones, if we had body cams, if we had locked off cameras and hidden cameras, it wouldn't be the problem that it is today. And if we had, more importantly, implementation of the laws and police better, it wouldn't be a problem. Is it as simple as that? That is, I mean, that's, that would take into account a lot of it. I mean, we are looking at... It's looking as if this legislation will be coming through soon once it once it gets okayed by the department, and and that's great. We need that legislation in place. However, Ireland we're a great country for introducing legislation and then not backing it up with the necessary resources, and that's crucial. So so the legislation is teeth, but we need these teeth to be lodged in the jaw, if you if you like, and and that means. Uh, sufficient resources for local authorities, for the Environmental Protection Agency, to go out to catch these people and to see it all the way through the courts. You know yourself, court um, legal processes are expensive and time-consuming, and there needs to be commitment to see these things through because a lot of these people, if they're caught, they might get traditionally they may have got a you know a slap on the wrist, a, a paltry fine, and sure that's it, and they're away in the hack again. So you need serious deterrence. So the legislation allows will allow for that for serious fines. But there has to be the resources to see all this through. And if there isn't, then I'm afraid it'll be very much a paper tiger. And at what point do we anticipate that this will come across the line? We know the legislation is, is on the way, but it's in terms of it being copper fastened and being implemented. Yeah, I, I can only repeat what the department has said, that they're, they're nearly at the end of the process. Um, I do know GDPR concerns have been at the, the forefront of this. And that's, you've probably dealt with this yourself uh, over the years. It's fiendishly complicated, uh, I think, the, the GDPR. So I'm assuming that accounts for a lot of the delay in having getting this over the line already. But according to the department themselves, they're closer to the end than they are at the beginning. So, and, But, but you do accept, uh, Colin, none, nonetheless, that you know when we have GDPR in situ, as we do, and the complexities mm-hmm. of that, that there is going to be a time lag on introducing legislation because there is a fear around GDPR in terms of the consequences of breaking GDPR protocol. Absolutely. And that's why, as frustrating as it is that the delay is going on as long as it has, it's more important that they get it right uh, from the beginning so that it isn't held up to, you know, uh, court appeals here then. You want to make sure the legislation is strong and, and watertight uh, from the beginning and then you go from there. And that takes time. That now, takes time. Th- there's another element to this and that is our social responsibility. We mm-hmm. seem to be jettisoning that or have done for quite some time when you consider the black spots, the litter black spots around the yeah. country. There is an onus on us as citizens to be able to there do is. something about it. 
Yeah, and one of the things that we can do is, now I live in Dublin, so I, you know we've got various different bin collectors that come around, I'm sure it's the same with most towns around Ireland, but some people do engage uh, waste collectors. Now, if you do that, it's very important to see if they have the NWCPO, so the National Waste Collection. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Permit office. They must have that license. That means that they're above board and they'll take the waste and look after it properly. Um, so that's one thing people can do. Another thing, and it's not, it's not down to the people, it's the fact that the amount of packaging and uh, goods, packaging that's produced these days and waste generally is, is increasing and increasing. And that's not to do with the citizen. That's to do with producers. Uh, so Voice would, all, would advocate for schemes like um, EPO schemes, like the deposit return scheme that's coming in next year, whereby the onus is on the producers to uh, collect bottles and cans and get them recycled again. And so should this new scheme coming in, should see a massive reduction in the amount of plastic bottles and cans, for example, we see as later about the place. But we need to Just to explain, pro- Colin, yeah. to explain that to us, because, I mean, it's it's yeah. relatively new. We've heard it um, a la carte across various uh, media programmes. But essentially, mm-hmm. it's going back to the days when I was a young fella. You had a glass bottle, you bring it back to the supplier and you get, I think it was five pence or something for it. It's something similar today, isn't it? Exactly that, exactly that. And another way of looking at it is you go to the supermarket, you put your 50 cent or euro into the trolley, you bring the trolley around, get your goods, put all the, your shopping into the car, you bring the, the shopping trolley back, you get your euro back. It's that same kind of mechanism. Um, basically, we want the product, not the packaging. So by placing a deposit or a bounty, if you like, on the bottles and cans, that should ensure a far greater collection. So yeah, it's, it's exactly as you said, Alan. It's, it's an old concept. It's not necessarily even an environmental one. It's just, well, these are good quality materials. We should make an effort to make sure they get back in and we can use them again and again. One thing I noted, and I think it's being, uh, it has been a, a worrying development, the number of people, particularly younger people, that I see just throwing rubbish nil, willy-nilly on the ground. A packet of sweets, packet of crisps, just throw it on the ground. I walk through my local park some mornings particularly after a weekend, and it is littered with coffee cups, sandwich wrappers, crisps, packets. You know, we have to get back to the very basics of the problem here, and that is education around littering. Yeah, and to be honest with you, Alan, this is an issue that confuses the life out of me. So um, it's a Gordian knot that we have to figure out. Generations of Irish children, going back the last 15, 20 years, have had an environmental education like no preceding generations. They know far, learn far more about this stuff in school, linking behaviour to outcomes in terms of environmental issues. And yes, <laughs> they seem to be clued into it in school, but there's a disconnect between what they learn and how they act. 
Uh, and you can also see this in fast fashion in terms of like buying lots and lots of cheap clothes, just using them a little for a short period of time, getting new clothes. So, so they know all about the issues, but they don't seem to apply the, their knowledge to themselves and their actions. And I don't put too much hassle on, on young people. Um, you know, they, they have a lot to deal with, um, as all generations do, but they, they have a new set of problems that we never had uh, previous generations. But yeah, the, there's a huge issue there. And uh, like I said, we have to get down to brass tacks and just taking responsibility for our own actions. If you buy a bar of chocolate in the shop, you bought the packaging and the product. So you can eat the product, that's a lovely bar of chocolate, but you're still responsible for the packaging. So it's about trying to get that message across. Colin, can I ask you uh, your own view of uh, local communities cleaning up the local community, I beg your pardon, on a Saturday or once a month or whatever. They get the high-vis jackets, they get the bins from the local authority. Essentially, these people are doing what the local authority are being paid for, but by all accounts aren't doing it sufficiently enough that they have to get the local community out to do their job. Yeah, yeah, it's a funny one. Um, you would rather that... Okay, so I suppose with these communities, like say tidy towns groups or just your, your local residential group, they will go out and they will do a litter pick. Now, as you said, the, the local authority... But we pay the local authority through our taxes yeah, to, to do, do that, this. so why should we have exactly. to do it? So why should we have to do it? That's an excellent question, and one I don't have a really good answer for, but I do see the benefit of groups getting together and doing that because it does co- have a cohesive effect on local communities. And to be fair, from my experience, the local authorities will provide bags, will collect the rubbish, will give litter pickers and all that. So there's a kind of a hand-in-glove effort. Um, that's not a great answer for you, but there are benefits to communities coming together and taking ownership of that issue themselves. Once they're, they're, um, they're backed up by the council and given the, the materials and the gloves and the litter pickers and the rubbish taken away from them, it's kind of... Yeah, the local authority should be doing it, but also there's a benefit to communities going out and doing it themselves. But then when you have lo- you have litter black spots coming out and people just dumping willy-nilly, well then that's that's where the council and the local authorities really have to step in, step in hard, because that's massively disheartening to community groups. Who want look, to look at Colin, I, I think it's important as well to emphasise it's not only Ireland or Dublin or whatever county that oh, has no, a problem. No, no. This is an international problem in most yep. cities. However... There are times you walk around Dublin City, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, where you utterly wince when you see the litter and the rubbish everywhere and think to yourself, what must tourists think when they come to this city and see it? Yeah, they might think it's just like home. <laughs> you know what you said? It's, <laughs> it's, um, it's everywhere. And actually, I was just reading about this um, case being brought in France, Luxembourg, about a huge illegal dumping operation that was going on for years, and they have cross-border coordination and cooperation between Luxembourg and France now to deal with this. So yeah, it's everywhere. Like, it's the kind of thing you could look at as in legal terms and philosophical moral terms. Is it indicative of greater societal malaise in Western Europe? Yada yada. It's very difficult to say. It's multifaceted. But for me, uh, as an employee of Voice, but also just as, as myself. I just can't figure out the mindset of someone who would throw rubbish on the ground rather than put it in their pocket and then put it in a bit nature, even if it's not the recycling bit, just a general rubbish bin. I can't figure that out. And I don't think you have to be an environmentalist to be confused by, by people who just throw rubbish willy-nilly. But I do think even if you had 5% of the people, 10% throwing rubbish, that can, because it's so pervasive, it can give you the impression that everyone's doing it, whereas it's probably not a huge percentage of people who are doing it. It's just that their impact is overstated. 
Well, Colin, we leave it there, but you hit the nail on the on the head with your final comment, the mindset of somebody who would do that. That is Colin O'Byrne of the environmental charity Voice Ireland. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Welcome back. A review of the, uh, the response to the rioting in Dublin last month has found there were communication failures on the night. The policing authority has been told that Garda commanders in the central control room could not communicate directly with members of the public order unit responding to dis- disturbances and looting because they didn't have earpieces. The review carried out by the Assistant Commissioner Paul Cleary has recommended that these ins- be installed in Garda helmets and that loud hailers be supplied and mobility apps be improved. Joining us this morning to discuss this and other matters is Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary with the GRA. Tara, good morning to you. This were it not so serious, is almost laughable. It's bordering on Keystone Cops to think that there was no direct communication between Central Command and the, the Gardaí on the beat policing these riots. It, it's almost ludicrous in the extreme, is it not? Good morning, Alan. Um, it is indeed, and I suppose um, it emphasises all the issues that the GRA have been screaming about, I suppose, for the last 12 months with regards to things like equipment, communication, resourcing, training. Um, so, so all of these issues really came to a head on the streets of our capital city on the 23rd of November. Um, and we have serious concerns about uh, our members and because it is our members who will be frontline and who will be dealing with this incident if something similar were to happen again in the future. Um, the communication issue is of serious concern to us. There was an over-reliance on WhatsApp. WhatsApp is not an official form of communication, although the Commissioner is now alluding to Are you that. actually seriously telling me that the Gardaí were using WhatsApp as a yes, form of absolutely. communication? And, and the Commissioner spoke about that himself. He, he was an RTE crime call programme on, on Tuesday evening, I think, or on Monday evening, and he, he spoke about the use of WhatsApp. And look, WhatsApp is a great communication tool. But for not for Gardaí and not for sensitive uh, yeah. communication between members of the force, surely? Absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, members in the city centre were using WhatsApp literally to WhatsApp their friends and their colleagues down the country. Can you come up and, and give us a dig out here? You know, we're, we're stuck and whatever. And we also saw those horrific scenes um, on our own phones, again, coming in via WhatsApp. And that's how most members were actually notified about this and got into their cars, got into vans and whatever, and made their way to the city centre. Are you, uh, sorry, Tara, just for interrupting, I, I just want to concentrate on this for a little bit longer. Are, are you aware of any other force on the planet that uses WhatsApp as a form of communication in situations like this? I don't know what other police forces use, but I suppose other police forces have a plan in place to deal with something like this. I mean, I think this incident really emphasised the fact that there is very little, if any, forward planning in Angarda Siakana. And even to emphasise that, as recent as this week, I actually wrote to the Director of Training in the Garda College to find out what is the plan for training for our members in 2024 and I was told that they are not in a position as of yet in the third week of December to provide me with a plan of what training is going to look like in 2024. So there's very much a reliance on, you know, we'll deal with this as it happens and that's exactly what happened in November on the streets um, in those rides. It was really relying on the goodwill of the Garda members who literally left their homes and made their way to the city centre. In particular, I know um, 
a large containment of officers that arrived up from Kildare. They were on their way up. They were trying to make contact with their colleagues in Dublin. They could only speak to other Garda ranks because they couldn't get in contact with anyone of a more senior rank. When they arrived in Dublin city centre, they made the decision themselves to go to O'Connell Street because they had not received any other clear directions or clear communications on where to go. And that's what led to these isolated incidents where we've seen guards on their own fending off you know, scores of, of people attacking them, calling them names, throwing things at them. That's what led to these incidents. And really, it's by the hand of God that people weren't any more seriously injured than they were. We do have one of our colleagues who unfortunately last week had to have one of his toes amputated. We had hoped that it wouldn't actually come to that, but he did actually have to have a toe amputated as a result of okay. missiles being thrown at his face. Tara, uh, communications aside, and it, it's almost unbelievable what, what you're telling us here and what's coming out of this report, but having had time, I suppose, to reflect on what happened during that period and to think about what could have been done, what should have been done and what needs to be done in the future, what are the members of the GRA telling you? What are rank and file guardies saying in light of what happened and what needs to be put in place? Well, the big thing, Alan, around this is training. Uh, training is absolutely the core to this. And as I, as I said to you already, we still don't know what the training plan for 2024 is going to look like. Um, our members have had all their training diluted back to an online system. So every new system that has come on board within Angardashi Econ in the last number of years, that training is an online programme. Our members have been asked to engage in that training while they're maybe engaged in, in public office duties or they're in the middle of doing files and maybe three, four o'clock in the morning they're allocated time to sit down and do training. Now my background is in training, Alan. I've spent the last 16 years as a Garda trainer and I can tell you there is absolutely no replacement for in-face training, bringing our members into a classroom and actually sitting down with them and actually delivering the training like that. But that has completely been diluted in the last number of years um, and the training staff around the country no longer have the capacity because all of their time is spent training probationary guards. Now that's usually important as well and it's very important that we train our probationary guards but that means that every other guard in the country who is not a probationer has not received in-person core programme policing in about five to six years. And that is a serious, serious concern for us. And we have emphasised this. We have brought this to Commissioner over and over again. And we keep being told, yeah, we're rolling something new out, but it always ends up being online. And that's a serious concern. Another concern is public order training. Since the new programme was introduced in 2013, public order training no longer forms part of standard police training. I was trained in public order. I trained as a guard 25 years ago. New guards coming out have absolutely no public order training. They are not issued with riot helmets. Our members have not received refresher course, courses in ASP use or pepper, pepper spray ask, or pepper spray use since before the pandemic and we're told the cert that you got five, six years ago will cover you. It will not cover okay. our members. So training is the key issue here. And it begs the question then, is the force fit for purpose in light of the negative things that you have raised here in relation to what a police force should be doing but can't do because it hasn't got the training and it hasn't got the equipment? Well, what I would say to that is I I think if you look at the way our members um, performed on that particular night... This, by the uh, way, sorry, Tara, this isn't a a reflection or having a go at the Gardaí. I'm just trying to get to the very core of do we have a police force that is sufficiently able to function in the present environment on the basis of what they have available to them? 
we would say no. Uh, and I suppose that's very much reflected in our ballot in in our conference in the Commissioner, which which we had earlier on in the year with, with almost 99% of our members saying that they did not have confidence in the Garda Commissioner to lead the police organisation. Um, and that ballot and, and its results still very much hold. There are so many failings in relation to equipment, communication, resourcing, training, retention. We are now coming up to the end of the year. We have lost 157 members this year to resignation with probably another 10 to 15 that will leave before the end of the year. The government has not met any of its targets in relation to recruitment. They've consistently changed that number and reduced it every time. They're at 624 now. Initially in January we were told 1,000. That was then reduced to 800. They will not meet those targets. So we're not meeting our targets. In yeah, but hang on. In, in fairness, Tara, I mean, the Minister has increased the age, as I understand it, to 50 in terms of being able to uh, apply to the force. There's going to be a big recruitment drive early January as well. That's going to help. Yes, absolutely. We would hope so. We would have concerns, obviously, around older people joining the guards and, and that will have implications for their pensions down the road which is a whole other issue that I could raise with you as well and I suppose that contributes to retention as well. People are not inclined to stay when they look forward at their at their pension issues. And um, Look at all of these issues and, and we appreciate that the Minister is trying to, to fix this in relation to to recruitment. Well, well, but let I mean, me ask you, you just were... just about what the, the minister is being, uh, has has initiated here. I mean, we we know that the, uh, pepper spray. There's going to be a stronger uh, incapacitant spray being made available. We've the CCTV footage. We've extra guardy in the street uh, around the Christmas period, and they'll reassess that in the new year. Are you, are you saying this is nothing more than window dressing from the Department of Justice and from the minister? Well, I think these are temporary measures. Those guardy that are out on the street that came out for Christmas and they're very welcome, they're not finished their training. Um, and that in itself is an organisational risk to bring guards out of the Garda College before they've actually completed their training. They have to still return to the Garda College in January to finish their training. So that in itself is an organisational risk and I suppose a further emphasis of the fact that, that training is is almost you know, being diluted here and not being seen as important. Those Garda members were not due to come out of the Garda College until after Christmas until their training was finished. So, um, Yeah, but but no, hang on. In fairness, the Minister did say they will go back to complete the training. They were there just as a temporary stopgap to get us over a period of Christmas. Yeah, and as I said, they're very, very welcome, but, but, but we're looking at, at their welfare. And, you know, if you're not fully trained then you're not fully ready to take on the role. So we would have concerns for those younger members who are out on our streets at the moment who haven't fully completed their training. But look, they're out on the streets now and they're very welcome. And I spent Monday myself in, in the north inner city with my own family and I have to say there was a fairly significant guard of presence around O'Connell Street and Henry Street and it was quite reassuring. It's the first time in a long time that I've seen that many guards out. It is reassuring. But we would be looking for that sort of presence on our streets all of the time not just for Christmas, not just in the aftermath of riots. People need to see Gardaí on the beat all of the time. So, you know, there's, there are a lot of issues here. Uh, look, some of them are being addressed. There's a lot of work to do, I, I, I think, um, and, and needs to be done. more needs to be done perhaps to hold on to the members that we have. We still have very significant numbers of people resigning, and that's a major concern to us as well. Um, and on cost of living as well, of course, you know, we're engaged in pay talks as well, and that's another issue that needs yeah. to be addressed. But there has there has been increases and there has been change and that change has very much been driven I think by the GRA and by the fact that we're continuously emphasising these issues to the Commissioner and to the Minister and asking for better for our members because our members do, they deserve better than what they were subjected okay, to. Okay, well, well on that then, if someone were to come to you and say 
Tara, what do you think? Should I join up? Should I apply? What would you say to them? I suppose I had these discussions, Alan, with the many people that I interviewed uh, for my exit interviews earlier on in the year, and this discussion was had. Um, I really don't know how I would answer that question, and I have four children myself, and both myself and my husband are in the job, and I'm not sure how I would feel if one of my children came to me in, in the next five to ten years and said, Mommy, I want to join the guards. Um, well, I, I, know really, what I, I know what I'd say just in the five yeah. minutes having, uh, having spoken to you about this would be an absolute categoric no. Well, what I would say is, look, I am a very proud member of the Guards. I've, I've over 25 years done. I'm extremely proud of the work I do. I'm extremely proud of the work that all the members that I represent do. And I think it is a very worthwhile job. It's a job that has huge satisfaction when you work with people, when you work with the community, when you're there with people, you know, when their life is absolutely turned upside down. It's the Guards that you will call to be there by yeah. your side, you know, the worst of the worst. And we have incredible, incredible men and women um, in our force doing incredible work. Um, I just think more needs to be done in relation to the terms and conditions that they're currently working under. Give them better safety, give them better equipment, give them better training. Have a look at the pay, have a look at the pensions. You know, and literally, as the Commissioner says, it's a job worth doing. Make it a job worth doing. It is. I mean, you're there to serve, protect. But if you don't have the tools and the support to do that, you can't do your job. The frustration sets in and you just say, why bother? Yeah, and, and we have had issues during the summer where morale has been extremely, extremely low and that was very much reflected in the ballot that we had uh, with regards to our confidence in the Commissioner. Morale was at an all-time low, um, possibly still is. Um, you know, hopefully there is light at the end of the tunnel with, with regards to recruitment, with regards to rosters. We're still very much involved in roster negotiations and we would hope to have... Um, you know, to have definitive decisions made on that, hopefully earlier on in the, in the new year. Um, so, so all of these are, are positive, certainly for our members. But at the moment, we would keep emphasising the fact that we just need better engagement with the Commissioner and we need to keep engaging in relation to those core issues, equipment, training, communications, resourcing. OK, just very finally, Tara, has rank-and-file opinion shifted towards the Commissioner? Are they warming up to what he's been saying and the mood music coming from the Commissioner's office? Are you still pretty much saying, wrong man for the job? The results of our ballot in September still okay. hold. All right, Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary with the GRA, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we get back to some of your comments before we leave you in the next 20 minutes. So quite a number to get through there. If you want to text us in or email us, you know how to do that. You can mail michael at lmmfm.ie. Now as Christmas approaches, we're only a handful of days away, Irish people are continuing to face a housing and cost of living crisis that's pushing more people into homelessness. There are currently 430 adults accessing temporary accommodation services across Loud, Meath, Cavan and Monaghan, with many experiencing hidden homelessness, which is unaccounted for. Rising rents, lack of housing is putting an increase in the number of families and individuals uh, in the North East at risk of homelessness this Christmas. Joining us this morning is uh, Dermot Murphy, Director of Services and Development with DePaul. Dermot, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Give us an insight as to how difficult the situation is for those families who are facing homelessness or in a homeless accommodation. Hi, Alan, and good morning to you and your listeners, and thanks for having us on today. Um, in Nepal, we're one of the leading homeless charities that work with men, women and children across Ireland. Um, what we're seeing is continued increase in the numbers of people entering into homelessness. And at this time of the year, you know, it, it's it's even more significant, the weather 
the weather has shifted. Um, it's a blustery and rainy day today. I'm sure your listeners can can attest to that. And I think what what we are seeing is that you know a significant level of trepidation for people as they move into the Christmas period. How are they going to make ends meet? How are they going to pay rent? Have the heating on and and ensure that those those that they're living with their families and their children uh, can have a good Christmas. Um, we see the numbers rising in homelessness. We're over nationally. We're over thirteen thousand. Um, men, women, and children in homelessness now. And if you think about the northeast, you know we we had this year alone 261 notices to quit in the northeast area. And only if you go on that today, there's only 90 properties um, available. So you can see that that number is going in one direction. And um, our staff are are dealing with an unprecedented crisis mm-hmm. of, of people ringing anxious. Can I just ask you, um, uh, can I ask you, Dermot, just in relation to the profile of the individual who's facing homelessness and a a squeeze in terms of the cost of living, we tend to associate it with the more marginalised in the socioeconomic demographic. Is that still the case? Are we seeing that perhaps being spread out to a much uh, broader cohort? Oh, it's certainly spread out, and I think that's a very good point. Um, I think what what we certainly have seen is an increase in in the number of family homelessness, which traditionally it was more singles all of the time. No, they still make up the largest cohort, but you can see even within that, you know, we we have working homeless now. Um, we we run a lot of homeless accommodation specifically for singles and, and then also for families and they they take very different approaches and how you support people depending on the degrees of complexity and I think I think you're right in that it's no longer what people would traditionally have considered those to be homeless, those on the margins, those with significant vulnerabilities or addictions. They still exist in there and they're still the most vulnerable within homelessness. But you know, we've had to change the models of services um, to ensure that like when we're doing checks that those risk assessments where you will be working with people with complexities, they're not always the case now. So they only check at night time is only disturbing someone who's going to have to get up in the morning to go to work living in a homeless and, and can so you c- can you identify a point at which this has accelerated? Does it go back to post-COVID cost of living crisis when you've seen that acceleration or has, had, has it been a, a progressive curve, an upward curve even further back? I, I, think, I think the homeless crisis has been going since before COVID, I think regionally and, and particularly in rural areas, towns and cities and villages, what we've seen like in the northeast, for example, is we've seen a, a doubling of rent since COVID. Um, you know, so that that cost of living is very much making it more difficult for people to stay out of homelessness. Yeah, it, it, it's all, it's also health- probably important to point out as well that the government provides supports for individuals who are having difficulty paying rent, like there's the HAP scheme as well, which we've seen oh, an increase in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we, we collaborate very closely with our strategy partners. Um, and the, the, the issue the issue isn't so much um, access, you know, getting support from the state with regards to paying or rental accommodation. The issue is as much about getting rental accommodation. We know landlords have exited um, the market, smaller smaller private landlords, and I think the, the most recent budget um, certainly moved in the right direction to support um, support that, you know, and, and to try and help smaller landlords stay 
within the sector. But but we know that they they've shifted out more than they've come in, and and that's that's created a pinch point. So I think Alan, that one one of the biggest pieces has been that the homeless crisis has been on an upward curve for quite a while. We've seen over COVID that you know when the statutory partners and the NGO partners work together in a in a very pinpointed fashion that we can put significant impacts on um, psychosocial and, and community issues such as homelessness and complexities. You know, through through COVID, nobody was left on the street that didn't that that didn't want to be on the street. Yeah. You know? Well, well, that, that's that's so a, a point that I, I just want to raise with you. We talk about homelessness in the minds of some individuals. That's a case of these people are on the street. They're intense. And in some cases, yes, they are intense, particularly those who are coming in seeking international protection. But what we're yeah. talking about are people who perhaps will be evicted from their properties. They won't necessarily be on the street, will they? There will be some form of temporary accommodation provided for them, will there? Not in every circumstance, Alan. I, I had a phone call at 11 p.m. a couple of weeks ago from a concerned person who, who rang me and said, look, I am I have a mother who's at the contact in me um, with three children and her landlord has just changed the locks. Um, she has nowhere to go tonight. Is there anything that can be done? Which the landlord um, can't yeah. do unless he went through or she went through due process Absolutely in terms of not. giving them the 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 uh, agreed notice period. So they are breaking exactly. the law. Exactly. Um, and so, so in the first instance, there's very little that can be done on that night. That mother and two children had had nowhere to go. We we rang around and, and tried to find somewhere. Initially, we couldn't, and, and the advice was that they should go to a guard station. Um, we don't afford a walk in the background and we did find somewhere for them to stay that night and then we, we got in touch with some of our other contemporaries um, that work on supporting uh, tenants' rights and stuff like that to, to address that. So not every not every circumstance is in that situation but we do have family breakdown this time of the year is a particularly difficult time of the year um, for families that are under pressure if you have a lot of couch surfing going on or overcrowding so we we certainly we certainly have in the past experienced an inflation in mm-hmm. some of those numbers um, and that won't necessarily be somewhere like within Paul, all of our services are full all of the time Okay let me ask you just finally Dermot will a family who find themselves in a situation where they will be homeless coming up to Christmas find themselves that the family may have to be split up. Children may have to go one place with one adult, an adult have, may have to go somewhere else. Is there any guarantees that you can give families that you'll be able to house them under the one roof? Well, within the poll, we, we certainly try to do that in, in all circumstances, as I know do the other um, charities that are working in this area, Alan. Um, and again, with the statutory partners, that that's the case. But in some cases, the only available accommodation may not be ideal, and there may be a need to to split, like a father, you know, maybe a, a female with children only type service that's available, and um, due to various risk profiles. So that would mean the father may have to go somewhere else, and that, yeah. that's a very difficult of course, yeah. circumstances. What we try to do, Alan, and, and just to finish on this, what we try to do is to ensure that we still have a Christmas together, you know, that we still make sure the families can get together, that we create family room space where people can have dinner together. You know, I think it's it's about sometimes 
remembering that you know we're, we're we have to do the best in a, in a set of bad circumstances. You know. Okay, we leave it there. Dermot Murphy, Director of Services and Development with DePaul. Thank you for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. The blockading of accommodation intended for asylum seekers or Ukrainians should not be tolerated by Angarda Shiakona, who must intervene to ensure access, according to Green Party Senator Pauline O'Reilly. The last year has seen an increase in blockades of proposed accommodation centres, as well as a number of deeply sinister attacks on some of these properties, as was witnessed at the Ross Lake Hotel in County Galway last week. Well, joining us this morning uh, to discuss this is um, Senator Pauline O'Reilly of the Green Party. Senator, thanks for taking our call. You do understand, Senator, that the Gardaí face a dilemma here. If they were to go in and break up these blockades, they would be accused of the civil libertarians of being heavy-handed, or they could potentially escalate a situation that could get out of hand. So the best approach, perhaps, is negotiation as opposed to going in to try and break them up. Is that not reasonable? Morning, Alan. Well, look, I'm in Galway myself, and uh, it was quite clear in the hours um, and couple of days leading up to the fire that um, you know that a blockade was there, um, and that the intention was to stop stop people from coming into a property, an empty property that could have accommodated 80 people. Um, so, look, I think that the Gardaí have taken an approach. Um, I think we've all taken an approach that we are going to, I suppose, talk people round. Um, but actually, what I'm observing across the country is that people have been going to see this as a legitimate form of protest. And I, you know, I don't think any of us would feel that standing outside someone's neighbour's house and stopping them from going in would be legitimate. Um, protest in terms of having meetings, having marches, protesting outside councils, protesting outside, outside Leinster House, all of those things are perfectly reasonable. And I think we'd all expect that when people feel really strongly but it's the, the difference here is in um, in blocking people from legally accessing their home, and and I think that we have to call that out. But look, I just wanted to say at this point, um, as I am in Galway, that the real issue here is the deep shock and the worry um, and the fear for their safety that our community feels um, in Galway and right across the country yeah. when they feel that people might set fire to a building that they know well um, or that people are, you know, intimidating other people. And I don't think taking the law into your hands is the right way. Understood and totally agreed, Senator. And and I will come back to that. But I just want to be clear again in relation to the the main point that you're making here. You're calling on the Gardaí to do what? Do your job. Is that it? Move the protests on. No more negotiation. Get them out if they're breaking the law. I think it's I think it's not a protest. So blocking people's entrance. Well, in a, let's call it an illegal protest. So if they're breaking the law, Gardaí do your job. Are you saying they're not doing their job? I think the Gardaí are doing the way. I think the the kind of guard Gardaí that we have in Ireland is that negotiation, and I think that it has stood as well. But we have had now up to fifteen arson attacks, and nobody's been prosecuted at this stage. Now, you know, reports in Galway are that there are a few local people who are being looked at for this arson attack. But we can't continue in this way. And I think there's a massive amount of of misinformation 
Um, I think that people have concerns around around services. Yeah, but, but, but sorry, Senator, for cutting across again, but, but it's it's kind of dangerous as well to try and equate these protests with individuals who may be involved in the protests of carrying out activities that are against the law, whether it be arson or whatever. That, that's a dangerous route to go down as well. We don't know who did it, albeit that Gardaí are looking at, at local possibilities. But apart from that, that's all we can say. Um, yes, well, I don't think that the, the, the two things are different, but a blockade, um, I don't think is acceptable either. And obviously, arson is another thing that isn't um, that isn't acceptable. But I think that people, unfortunately, have been led to believe uh, by local politicians in some instances that blocking people's entrances is appropriate. And I don't, and I don't think that it is. Okay, so it raises, yeah, it raises a much bigger question in that. Why are the protests there? Why are what we would consider to be moderate, normal individuals going out and protesting against having people coming into the communities? That's the question that needs to be asked. Why is it happening? Yeah, and I think that that's the conversation that we need to have, you know, and I think that it's, it's, as I said, it's quite reasonable to be concerned about services um, and to want to meet and to to discuss integration, to want to meet and discuss what kind of services will be provided. But, you know, in in terms of, um, and certainly in terms of Galway, there's emergency situations where people need to have roofs put over their heads. And I think the most humane thing to do is to say, yes, you will attempt to find places for people in urban centres. But if that's not possible, to have people sleeping um, without a roof over their head isn't safe. Yeah. And so I think most people accept, and actually, you know, for the most part across the country, people have been absolutely accepting and integration has happened really well. People move in and there there isn't that kind of issue or animosity. But yeah. fear-mongering is a different thing about who the people are, what type of people they are. Mm-hmm. When we've got, we've got a, a, you know, a robust asylum process and I think people don't realise that we have a remote Now, now your, your own party your own party is in government and the government has been accused of getting the narrative wrong on this and not disseminating the information as it should have been in a matter of fact and a speedy way. Do you agree that they have to take up some of the blame for where we're at in terms of these protests and if they had acted more speedily and engaged with the local communities in a more wholesome way, we wouldn't necessarily be seeing these protests? Well, this blockade was set up within a matter of hours of of notification, and in that notification was that there would be full engagement um, with local communities. So, um, you know, it isn't a case that there isn't engagement. Uh, should there be more? Uh, should it be longer? When it can be, absolutely. When it's not a, an emergency situation, but um, but. It is, it's a conversation about what kind of services and what kind of integration rather than a vetoing of, of okay. people who are legitimately have a private property and want um, you know, to enter into a contract so that people can be accommodated. But, you know, I think that, I think that people, that the real issue here is that people who are coming into our country for the most part, um, we absolutely need migration in our country because the country can't survive in terms of services and in terms of its economy without that. Okay. So the vast majority of people that people see around them are people who are here, um, invited in with work visas. And actually Ireland has a tiny number 
of asylum seekers compared to other countries. Senator, and I'm, I'm I sorry think for... That con- in people's minds, it, 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 it's much larger than it is, that okay. number. We so must we, leave it there. I think there's misinformation as well. We must leave it there. Senator Pauline O'Reilly of the Green Party, thank you for joining us. My apologies, I didn't get to your comments. I promise I will read out every one of them tomorrow before we leave you. They're there. They're in the file for tomorrow. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.